As I mentioned before, we have been going through the story. And uh, today, I'm actually not going to stick with the story. We've been going week by week through the story. And don't worry, I cleared it with Pastor Nathan. Uh, it's Palm Sunday, and it doesn't exactly line up with where we are in the story. So uh, I'm going to be talking about Passion Week, and I believe the story chapter is about Good Friday, and we have a Good Friday service. So if you've been following along in the story and you were expecting to come here about Good Friday, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm doing <laughs> Palm Sunday and Passion Week, and then we will do uh, Good Friday on Good Friday. So, with that, you know, Nathan has an iPad, so he doesn't need a lot of room. I need, like, another desk up here, because I got a pen and notes and a Bible. And so, Palm Sunday, as, as we all know, is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we're about to enter this period from... Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday that we call Passion Week. And or some people call it Holy Week. But Passion Week comes from the Greek word that means to suffer or to endure through a situation you, you suffer through is the, the Greek root of that word and, and why we call it Passion Week. So it might be more accurate to call it Suffering Week, uh, but we call it Passion Week. And we know that it must be important because all of the Gospels address Passion Week. And it takes up a large chunk of most of the, the Gospels. And I, I think I heard that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's about 30% or so, and John may be a little bit more. So we've got a 33-year lifespan of Jesus, and a full third of the Gospels of his story are recorded in the Gospels for this just this one week of his life. And we, we kind of know how it goes. Sunday he comes in to, to cheering crowds, palms laid out before him, riding on a donkey. He spends the night in Bethany, and then Monday he returns. He, he weeps over Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple, and then he goes back to Bethany. And he'll follow that pattern all week, spend the day in Jerusalem and then out to spend the night in Bethany. On Tuesday, he's spending time in the temple preaching. He goes to, uh, and he, he does some significant teaching called the Olivet Discourse with his disciples just outside the city on that, that afternoon and that evening. He cleanses the temple. And then Wednesday, uh, and then uh, towards the end of uh, Tuesday, Judas and the Sanhedrin start their plot to figure out how they're going to kill Jesus. Wednesday, we don't have anything in the Gospels. It's sometimes called the silent day in the, in the, in the Passion Week. Uh, we don't hear anything or see anything about what Jesus is doing, but we do know that the Sanhedrin are developing their plot all through Wednesday. Thursday, we get to the Last Supper, and there's a lot of things we remember about that, the washing of the feet, the, the, uh, the bread and the wine, And then Friday we get to the trials, the so-called trials, his crucifixion and his death. Saturday he's in the tomb. The apostles are terrified and in hiding. The Sanhedrin asks for a guard. 
And then Sunday morning we have, of course, the resurrection. As we move through the Gospels, I'll mention one criticism is that you see in Matthew and Mark that the, the withering of the fig tree seems to happen on two different days. And critics will often take that little discrepancy and they'll, be, they'll point it out as, oh, you can't trust the Bible because of this discrepancy we have here. And I'd like just to reassure everyone that we don't have to really worry too much about it because there are some really, really good reasons why it may appear that way. First of all, Romans and Jews considered the start of the day at different times. Right? The Jewish uh, tradition is to count the start of the day at sunset, while the Romans would count it at, at uh, dawn. So you could have two different, be speaking about the same thing, and have it be on two different days. And it just depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to Jewish people, you're assuming the day starts in the evening. And if you're talking to Romans or Greeks, you're thinking in the day. And it may have got that backwards, but in any event, you understand there's two different types of, right? And then we also have the fact that the Jewish calendar had five fewer days in a year than the Greek calendar. So all of these things that we're talking about that are discrepancies, first of all, we have to remember, none of them have anything to do with the fact that Jesus died on the cross. None of the theological truths that we hold are challenged or minimized by these little discrepancies. But if we don't address them and don't recognize they're there, if we just read through Matthew and we read through Mark and we're like, well, when did that tree wither? And we get hung up on that. We're forgetting that there's a cross. That's the most important thing. So uh, almost every discrepancy in the Bible can be, uh, can be harmonized or can be, be, uh, be uh, reconciled. So just so that we start off and we understand that there might be some things in these accounts of the four different Gospels that we got to kind of work through and, and think about. But what I'm going to be mostly doing is being staying in Luke as sort of my background for all of this. And that triumphal entry is in Luke chapter 19 in verse 28. I'm going to read that as we start off here. Again, in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found, excuse me, found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the coat, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will come out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what, it would, br what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you in to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now that's Jesus' entry. And the things that stand out to us are the donkey and the, that the disciples go and they find this donkey tied up and it, it kind of seems like a miracle to us that it would happen this way. But we, we also know that there was a prophecy of Jesus arriving or the Messiah arriving on a donkey. And what struck me, however, was back in Luke chapter 9, well before this, Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we see this verse. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Verse 19 is his triumphal entry. Verse 9, we see Jesus turning to go towards Jerusalem. And what, what I found interesting about that is that Jesus knows what's coming. He knows there's going to be a crucifixion. He knows he's going to be mistreated and abused. He knows what he has to do. And yet he turns towards Jerusalem, squares his shoulders and sets his jaw, knowing what's going to happen. Other translations use the word steadfastly, determined, make up his mind. I don't know what you call it or what your favorite term would be, but Jesus is teaching around Galilee and knows this is going to happen, and he turns and he starts going to wherever God tells him to go. I wonder sometimes how we react to knowing what we have to do. We know there are going to be trials in our lives. We know there are certain things that are going to be difficult for us. We know what Jesus said, that we are going to have to suffer. Being a Christian isn't an easy life. How often do we turn steadfastly towards the challenges that we have, knowing what we have to do and how hard it's going to be? We all want our lives to be easy, but I don't see that in here. I don't see a promise that life is going to be easy. And yet, I wonder sometimes, do we turn steadfastly to what we need to do to be followers of Christ, as Jesus does way before he comes to Jerusalem, where people are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, this is amazing. Now, Jesus knew that his time had come. The Jews also knew that the Messiah was supposed to come. Right around this time, and I'm not going to go through this prophecy, but I'm going to give you some homework if you are interested and you want to have your mind blown. Back in Daniel 9, there's a prophecy called the 77s. And it predicts to the year when, Jesus, when the Messiah is going to come and, and a few other things about what's going to happen. And guess what? It exactly happens. But I'm not good with math, and I'm not going to spend the time talking about that. Just know that in 30, the year 30, um, uh, geez, what am I talking about? The, 
about 30 A.D., yeah, I'm still not good with math, about 30 A.D., the Jews are expecting a Messiah. And there had been other Messiahs, false Messiahs that had come, and the Romans had killed them, and the Jews had said, this is a false Messiah, and they treat Jesus the same way, even though he's fulfilling all these prophecies. So please look up that prophecy of the 77s in Daniel 9. When Jesus turns steadfastly to head towards Jerusalem, he's in Galilee. And he's going to have to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the, the, um, the geography or the, the borders go like this. Galilee's in the north. Samaria's in the middle. Jerusalem is south. So you would want to go, if you're in Galilee to Jerusalem, you would go right through this, the Samaritan area and... What do we know about Samaritans and Jews? They do not like each other. So Jesus turns, he starts heading towards Jerusalem, and he comes to the first village in Samaria, and we're going to go right back to Luke 9, 51, where we just saw him turn. And this is what happens when he steadfastly and resolutely turns towards Jerusalem. 9, verse 52, And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. Can you imagine how frustrating this much must be for Jesus? Because if we look over at John 4, about three years before this, John meets a woman at Jacob's well. He reveals to her that he is the Messiah. And then we get this in John chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed, him, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Three years before that, the Samaritans are welcoming him. And now, because he's on the way to Jerusalem, they're saying, we don't need you. How short a memory we must have. After he's rejected there, James and John, they want to call down fire and have Samaria wiped out. And if maybe if I were in Jesus' shoes, I would have said, yeah, let's do that. I would have been not happy with the fact that it was only three years. They're welcoming me now, and now they're, I would be like James and John. But Jesus' message never fails, and it doesn't change. So, of course, what does he tell them? Nah, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's move on. And only a chapter later, in my Bible it's only a page and a half later, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they've just insulted Jesus, and a page later, Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples, you must love your enemies, you must love these Samaritans, even if they reject me.
good thing this isn't about our lives, is it? This example, I think, is for us that we need to stay solidly Christian, solidly followers of Jesus, even in the face of frustration. He moves on. He's not going to go through Samaria. He actually goes to an area that's east of Jerusalem called Perea. And the pace seems to start picking up now. Here's where we see Jesus send out the 70 to, to spread the gospel, to prepare his way down to Jerusalem. He's teaching lots of parables, doing lots of healings. This is where he encounters Zacchaeus. You know, the sycamore tree and all that. He gives the lesson of the famous rich young ruler. He's turned, he's headed towards Jerusalem, and he continues to teach. He continues to give that consistent message. We've read his arrival in Jerusalem on that colt that fulfills prophecy. You remember when we, when we read through it, what are the Pharisee, what's the Pharisee reaction to it? Jesus, tell your people to stop saying that. Now, why do you think they would say that? Well, because what the people are proclaiming is one of the Psalms. And the Pharisees recognize right away, they're saying that this is the Messiah, which, of course, is a threat to them. What the, what the people are saying is a praise of Messiah. The Pharisees tell Jesus, stop that. Because in those days, the, the teacher was held responsible for the, the, uh, the actions of their followers. So they were, they were demanding, Jesus, tell them to stop saying that. And Jesus' response is perfect, like every response he gives is perfect. He says, look, this is going to happen. And if there were no people here to praise me as the Messiah as I come in, even these stones would rise up in praise because God's plan is going to happen. What I notice here is that there is one group of people that's missing in this story, which I find interesting, and that's the Romans. Where are the Romans in this? Romans have been in power for 100 years now. They must know that the Jews are anticipating a Messiah. They must know something is afoot. They must know, they must have heard about Jesus. He's been around preaching for three years. Word must have gotten back to the intelligence services of the Roman authorities. And yet when he comes on that Sunday, they're nowhere to be found. I don't know why that is. I just found it interesting. Because Romans did put to death people who were political uh, political rivals to their power, and that's exactly what the Jews thought a Messiah was going to be. The Jews thought it was going to be David again bringing political power back to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's a threat to the Romans. I'm surprised they didn't send a battalion and stop this right away. But in any event, well, I'm not surprised because it's Jesus' plan. Never mind. So one of the first things he does in Jerusalem is he drives out the money changers. That's Luke 19, 45 and 46. Let's see what that says. Nineteen 
45 and 46. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You'll notice that he doesn't stop the sacrifices. He doesn't say stop sacrificing. And the term he used, robbers, is like a criminal term. And and to me, because so much of what the Bible teaches is about is about justice and and fairness, and what I think is well, what I what I think is happening is that he doesn't stop the sacrifices, but he stops the robbers, because you had to buy, if you didn't have a lamb or a dove to make the sacrifice, you had to buy one. So if you traveled from a long way from somewhere else and you came to Jerusalem, and you didn't bring your flock. You still needed to make the sacrifice, so you'd have to buy one. Or if you came from another area and you had money, you needed to change that money into the temple currency. And Josephus tells us, the, the Roman historian tells us, that the corruption that was going on with that was that sometimes the priests would find something wrong with your lamb and make you buy one of their lambs, even if you did bring a lamb. And the people who set the, the exchange rate is not the International Monetary Fund, It's the people who are actually changing the money. I can't imagine going in there if I were Jesus and seeing that going on in the house of God. Jesus keeps on teaching this whole week, this Passion Week where he knows what's happening. In Luke chapter 20 now, we're kind of moving a little bit forward. He's challenged by the Pharisees and what's called in Luke 20, verse 20, spies. Spies approach him, and they're asking about paying taxes to Caesar. And he had that famous, famous uh, uh, verse or that famous teaching of Jesus, pay unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and pay unto God what belongs to God. I'm paraphrasing, but that's... We all know that one. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. With this burden that he knows is coming, he's still going to teach us. What are, you ha- what are you supposed to do in relationship to the Father? Do that. And if there's a civilian authority that you need to do something with, do that for them. He's taking on all comers. The Sadducees, they come to him as he's teaching in the temple and they ask that, that uh, question about marriage, right? They want to know if uh, a man dies and his wife marries his brother as Moses has, has decreed should happen, and then that brother dies, right, all the way down seven. And it sounds like a kind of a silly question to us, uh, but the Sadducees, they don't believe in life after death, so they don't believe that there's an afterlife. The Pharisees do, and that's been a point of contention between the two of them. So they ask Jesus, oh, we'll, we'll get this guy now. And Jesus gives them the perfect answer. Well, that's not going to be like that in heaven. Now, there's only a few different sects, and one of the things you can remember about the Sadducees, the easy way to remember uh, what, what they believed is that because they don't believe in the resurrection, they are sad, you see. Don't roll your eyes, Josiah. You know that was funny. That was funny. 
in this last week, we see a contrast between beauty, humility, sacrifice, and love. With fear, betrayal, evil, and agony. Right away in verse 21, as we move through Luke and this story of Passion Week, we come to the story of the widow's offering. Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has, been, has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. One of the most moving and beautiful stories we have in the Bible that I dare say we may be able to learn from her in her example. Getting back to being in the moment here, John 13, chapter 1. John 13, chapter 1. I found this pretty interesting as well. We're now on, thir we're now on to Thursday evening. They're about to have the Passover meal. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I had to stop there when I, when I got to that part. Jesus loved them to the end. Now in context, there, he's talking about uh, this context is about the disciples, right? He's going to gather them in for the, for the Last Supper. And he's going to keep teaching that consistent message that he's always been teaching. He's going to be keep being an example to them. But to me, the moving part is that he knows what's about to happen and he, he's, he's being attacked. But he loves them to the end. And he washes their feet. What more example do we need from Jesus to be servants of his? At the Last Supper, we know the highlights. Jesus tells Peter and John, go into the village, you'll see a guy carrying the water jar and follow that guy. We have the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the wine. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. but we also have Jesus teaching. He's giving moral advice here in, in, verse, in chapter 20, Luke chapter 22. In verse 24 and 26. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus is telling his disciples that it doesn't really matter what the law is. Your moral obligation is to serve others. And you don't need a law to say that you have to do it. 
You have an obligation to your fellow man to serve, especially in a leadership position. And then he gives practical advice. He goes on and then he starts saying, remember when you were with me, you didn't need anything, but now take a dagger and a bag. And he's giving them practical advice. Right up to the end, the Last Supper ends. Judas has gone off to arrange the betrayal. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's under such stress that he he sweats great drops of blood as he prays. The authorities come. Judas, Judas gives the kiss. Jesus gets taken away for the show trial. Now we're at Good Friday and the suffering's going to come to a peak. Passion Week is soon going to be over. We're going to have Good Friday service. But this whole time, all along, Jesus has remained consistent. Teaching, healing, blessing. In the midst of all opposition and doubt. Passion Week. What a story. Maybe I'll go off script here. For Jesus turns and he goes to Jerusalem knowing what's going to happen. There's a reason that 2,000 years later we still look at that cross as a symbol for us, motivation, how we should behave in this world. There's a reason why this book has withstood all the criticism and opposition it has for 2,000 plus years. Jesus suffered in that Passion Week for a very important reason. And that reason is you. Not because you are important, but because you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. We are all hypocrites in this world. But are we humble enough to learn the lessons that Jesus taught us? Maybe you and I are like the woman caught in adultery and we don't need the condemnation of the world. We need forgiveness. And there's only one place that comes from. Maybe you and I relate to the prodigal son. No matter where we are on our journey, all we need is to come home and to be hugged by a father. Maybe we relate, we relate to the lost sheep We don't need more money. We don't need more things. We need a shepherd to come after us, to drop everything and follow us until we're found and brought back. That cross isn't there so that we can get a ticket punch to go to heaven only. That cross is there to break our chains so that we can do what Jesus commands us to do. To give to God what belongs to God and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. To give our last penny like the woman, the widow, who puts in what she has to live on. Not out of abundance. Are we serving like Mary? Are we washing feet? Are we loving our enemies? Jesus experiences Passion Week to free us from our chains.
not so that we have a ticket to go to heaven, but so we can be servants of our King.